happened then changes everything now. Today, uh, March 3rd, is a very significant uh, day in terms of an anniversary of what happened in my life 14 years ago. 14 years ago, March 3rd, 1999, was the day that I first placed my faith in Christ and began the journey of following Him. Now, I was a sophomore in college in that time, and up to that point, if you'd asked me, I probably would have said that I was a Christian. But I really didn't understand what it meant to be a Christian. I figured, well, you're a Christian if you sometimes attend a church that uses the Bible. And I knew I wasn't a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist, so I figured, well, I must be a Christian. But then on that day, uh, in the week leading up to that day of March 3rd, 1999, things began to change in my understanding of what Jesus was all about and what he had to do with my life. Like I said, I was a sophomore at that point, and about a week before that, um, one of my friends from one of my classes who I'd known for just a month and a half or so at that point, his name was Benji, he stopped by my dorm room one afternoon, and I was your typical college student who was looking for any possibility to, pro- to procrastinate. I was working on Calculus two homework at the time, um, just wanted to avoid that, so I enjoyed talking with him, and then at one point in the conversation... He asked me if I would be interested in answering a few spiritually related questions. And I thought, sure. Um, I really respected Benji. And like I said, I wanted to procrastinate more. And so that began a series of conversations over the course of that week where I was talking with him and with a man named Todd who was involved in the campus ministry at our campus. And we were talking about my my spiritual background. We were talking about uh, Jesus. They basically shared the gospel with me. Uh, We talked about how, you know, I'm a sinful person just like everyone is. That sin separates me from the holy and perfect God. Now, Jesus is the only one who bridges that gap through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. And as we talked, light bulbs are going on in my head. You know, I heard a lot of this stuff before because I grew up attending church quite a bit with my family. But the dots had never quite been connected in this way before. And, and by that point in my life, I really didn't care that much about God. I stopped going to church. And, and so as they talked, like I said, light bulbs were going on in my head. And I realized my need for a Savior. So on March 3rd, 1999, I committed myself to following Christ. And I didn't know exactly what that entailed at that point. I just knew I needed a Savior. I had no idea 14 years ago that, that today I'd be standing before you talking about Jesus. Um, it's kind of been a wild journey since then. Um, but I'm very thankful for what God did in my life during that time. But like I said, I knew a lot of those truths that Benji and Todd were sharing with me. I had heard them a lot in church. I, I knew that supposedly Jesus died on the cross to pay for the sins of the world. But I still didn't know exactly what that had to do with my life. And I think when we come to this time of year, uh, as we're looking ahead to Easter and to Good Friday and the events surrounding that, there are a lot of people who know some of the truths, know some of the facts of what happened, but have never really connected the dots of the significance of those events in our lives today in the 21st century. And there are many others of us who genuinely want to follow Christ and have followed him for a while, but then one of the challenges is that as time passes, we begin to take the truths of the gospel for granted. And especially as we come up on, on the season again of Good Friday and and Easter of Jesus' death and resurrection, 
We can easily get the mentality of, well, I've been there, I've done that, I know what there is to know. So right now, in the six weeks leading up to Easter, we're going through a series called The Easter Experience, where we're seeking to gain a fresh perspective on those crucial events of Jesus' suffering and his death and his resurrection. We began last week, and today we're going to continue it by looking at a passage in Matthew chapter 27. So I invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew 27. If you uh, didn't bring a Bible but would like to follow along, you can grab a Bible from the pew or the chair in front of you. Like I said, we're looking at Matthew 27. This is the account of Jesus' trial before the governor of Judea named Pontius Pilate. And today we're going to do the message a little bit different than normal. We do this periodically through the course of the year where we're going to look at this message from the first-person perspective. Where for a portion of the message, I'm going to take on the character of Pontius Pilate, seeking in a biblically faithful way to look at the, the events of this account through Pilate's eyes. And so in just a few moments, I'm going to pray, and then Steve Kutz is going to come up and read our passage for the day, and I'm going to come back into the sanctuary uh, in the character of Pontius Pilate. And then after that, um, I'll come back in um, in order to wrap up the message with a few concluding points. But I want to give a disclaimer before we dive into this passage that when doing something from the first-person perspective, my goal is to take on the character of, of the person in the story that I'm trying to characterize. Now, I'm certainly not a great actor, but the disclaimer is this, that, that I'm trying to represent the views and the decisions of Pontius Pilate. Um, and his views, especially of the Jewish people, are not necessarily the same as my views. He has a pretty harsh view of some of the things that are taking place around him. And so I just want to make that clear that what I'm trying to do is accurately represent what Pontius Pilate's view was and, and the decisions he made and why he made them. And, and these don't necessarily represent my view, but like I said, I'll come in at the end and then wrap everything up. So I'm going to pray for us, and then Steve is going to come up and read our passage today. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are able to gather here in your name. What a blessing it is to come to you with confidence through faith in Christ. And today, as we continue to examine Jesus' suffering and his death, we pray that you will give us fresh eyes and ears to hear and to see in vivid color what happened with Jesus and why that is significant in our lives today. So please speak to us through your word and through your spirit and use my words, Lord, um, to speak to us as well, but only in as much as they honor and are faithful to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 11, Matthew 27, 11 through 26. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. And that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. 
While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent the message to him, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Christ? Pilate asked. And they all answered, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. And all the people answered, Let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. My name is Pontius Pilate, and I have the unfortunate distinction of being known as the man who condemned Jesus Christ to death. Now, I bet that you guys who are gathered here today to hear my account of what took place, I bet you have very little knowledge of what else I did during my reign as governor of Judea. I bet many of you couldn't say, name one thing that I did. I did a lot of good things. You have to understand that. What took place in that condemnation of Jesus was just a couple of hours on a Friday morning. I don't think it's fair that, that I am judged throughout all of history for what took place in those few moments. Now, you have to understand here that on that morning, I was in a no-win situation. There was really no good way out of what took place. And realistically, if I want to be completely honest with you, what took place there and with the course of action that I chose is really just something that was forced on me. It was something that, that, that I just had to make this choice in order to protect uh, my political standing in the Roman Empire. Because if I had made a different choice, who knows if I'd even be governor, governor anymore after that. I may have been removed because there would have been a riot. So, so I was really in a no-win situation. Now, now let me explain a little bit of what happened that day. There's this man named Jesus. He, he was very well known throughout Israel. Uh, he gained quite a following, especially among the common people. The common people loved Jesus. I mean, they just flocked to him. He gave them a sense of hope and, and purpose and, and value that, that they didn't get from anyone else. And so the common people loved Jesus. But the Jewish leaders, on the other hand, they despised Jesus. They could not stand him. And, and, and so... When, when I came, come to Jesus, and I, and I think about Jesus, really, I didn't care one way or the other too much about him up to that point. I mean, I heard about him, but he was just over there somewhere. He wasn't causing me too much trouble. But I, I do admit, I had to kind of smile to myself when I heard about the rivalry between Jesus and those Jewish leaders. Because, you know, I cannot stand those Jewish leaders. They drive me crazy. I mean, they were trying to hold up all progress of the Roman Empire, I mean, right when I became governor a few, few years earlier, uh, one of the first things I did in Jerusalem, the capital city of Judea, I tried to set up these Roman standards, the, these big poles throughout the city that at the top have this picture of the Roman emperor Tiberius. I wanted to make it very clear that this is a part of the Roman Empire and, and the Romans will be valued and respected around here. Man, 
There was such a big outcry, especially led by the Jewish leaders, that after six days I had to take down all of those Roman standards with the, with the emperor's image on them. And then there was the time where I wanted to build this aqueduct, uh, this, this waterway from some springs about 40 kilometers outside of Jerusalem. I wanted to bring this nice fresh spring water into Jerusalem. I thought, you know, that would be so nice. Well, to, to fund it, I, I kind of used money from the temple treasury, from the Jewish temple. The Jews didn't like that too much. I don't know why, because, I mean, the majority of the people living in Jerusalem are Jewish people. I mean, this, this water benefited them, but they were awfully upset. I mean, there were, there were so many demonstrations, so many riots. I mean, tens of thousands of people are out there every day demonstrating and rioting. And it got to the point where I had to call in the Roman troops in order to try to calm the situation down. Tiberius was not too impressed with what was taking place under my reign, so we had to quiet the rioting down. Now, in the process, quite a few Jews ended up losing their life as we tried to, to, to squelch the uprising. Now, here's something I, I did uh, in order to get back at them, because, you know, they were holding things up. They were causing a big stink, messing up uh, things politically. Here's what I did. I, some of those people who died, some of those Jewish people, I took their blood... And I had it sent to the Jewish temple and mixed with the blood from the sacrifices in the Jewish temple. That was not very popular, but it was a way to get back at them. Because, like I said, I cannot stand the Jewish leaders. They, they get on my nerves all the time. And, and so when Jesus came along and, and I heard about how Jesus was opposing a lot of the things the Jewish leaders did, there was a lot of rivalry there, I just kind of smiled. But then came Passover week. And this whole thing of the rivalry between the Jews and Jesus, it kind of came to a head right there in my hometown during Passover week. Passover week was when a ton of Jews are there in Jerusalem celebrating their heritage. And to begin that week, I mean, Jesus made quite an entrance into the city. He came in riding on a donkey. There were a ton of crowds there. They were waving palm branches and they were laying their cloaks down on the ground and they were shouting praises to him. And, I mean, the crowd thought this was pretty cool. I mean, they liked Jesus a lot. The the Jewish leaders, though, could not have been more upset at what was taking place. They were taking note of everything that Jesus was doing. And and evidently, they were plotting to take Jesus down. On Friday morning of Passover week, I was at home. I mean, it was early in the morning. I I don't know what in the world was going on. But early in the morning, there was this big ruckus outside of my house. And they knocked on my door, they got me out, and it was the chief priests and the elders among the Jewish leaders who drugged Jesus there. Evidently, they had some sort of mock trial of him and found him guilty of some stuff. And so they brought, brought Jesus to me and were hurling all kinds of accusations at him. I mean, they were saying, he's undermining Israel. They, they were saying, he, he says that we should not pay taxes to the Caesar. They, they said, he's claiming to be a king. Look at him. He can't do that. I mean, they were raising all kinds of accusations against Jesus. I mean, it, it, was, it was kind of humorous and kind of sad. And I, I just kind of rolled my eyes at them because, I mean, I could see they aren't being reasonable right now. I mean, they're just trying to carry out their own personal whims against this guy, Jesus, who, from the rest of my knowledge, had done nothing to really harm them all that much. And so I just kind of rolled my eyes, but I knew, okay, something has to be done here. We need to calm down the situation. So I, I decided to look all official. I, I, I sat in the judgment seat out in front of my house. It's called the Bama seat. I sat in that seat um, and then began to question Jesus. 
And ask him, so are you the king of the Jews, as they say you are? He looked at me, and with a completely straight face, calm, he said, yes, it is as you say. <laughs> I, I just kind of chuckled, and um, I'll tell you, the Jewish leaders were not impressed with that answer. I mean, they were in an uproar. They were livid. They could, not, they could not believe that Jesus would say that. And so I looked at Jesus and said, well, aren't you going to answer their accusations? And he just looked right back at me and didn't say a word. I couldn't believe it. Actually, I mean, I was amazed. And I, actually, I was quite impressed at Jesus here because, I mean, that took quite some restraint because I'd heard about how he'd silenced his critics in the past, turning tables on them. But here in this instant, I think he saw that anything that he said would simply escalate the situation. He wasn't going to add fuel to the fire. And so he showed such restraint. But one of the other things that really struck me that day was when I looked into his eyes, I didn't see any fear of what was going to happen. There wasn't any uncertainty. Jesus had this look of complete control. Kind of like he knew what was going to happen. That he, he, he seemed to be fine, even with being condemned and killed, if that's what it came to. It's like he had a purpose that he was living out there. But the people that gathered there were in a riot. I mean, they could not understand what was going on. And I, I have to tell you... I, up until that point, I really had no feelings for Jesus one way or the other. I mean, besides the fact that I liked the way that he opposed uh, the Jewish leaders. But I knew that something had to be done. And I'd kind of been put in that no-win situation where, I mean, what do I do? My preference was to release Jesus because, I mean, he really hadn't done anything wrong at that point. I mean, yes, he did claim to be the king of the Jews, but... I mean, on one hand, I mean, if he tried to act it out in some way um, against the Roman Empire, I would have had a problem with it. But he was very peaceful. I mean, unlike other Jewish revolutionaries, he, he did nothing to try to be violent or to, he, I mean, he didn't even speak against the Roman government much at all. And on top of that, my wife sent me a message saying that, that just that day she had had this terrible dream in which she saw that Jesus was innocent. And she said, um, have nothing to do with him. Don't condemn him. And so I really wanted to let Jesus go. But there is this no-win situation where if I let him go, there is going to be such a riot. Probably unlike anything we've seen before here, and my political future is in jeopardy. But if I condemn him, odds are good I'm condemning an innocent man. So, so I didn't know what to do. So I came up with this idea. Um, I mean, there's a strategy that I thought was going to work well where sometimes I have this custom of releasing a prisoner. And it's really a political maneuver in order to just appease the people, to, you know, to try to gain favor in their eyes at times. I'll let them choose which prisoner I should release. And as, as, as time passed there and we were there, the name of Barabbas came up. Barabbas, he wasn't just any common criminal. He was an insurrectionist. He, he was trying to lead a revolution um, from the Jewish side against the Roman Empire. I mean, along the way, he killed quite a few Roman soldiers. And he was on trial. He was, he was most likely going to be put to death that day. And so here is Barabbas. I mean, in the eyes of Jewish people, he was a bit of a folk hero because he was a revolutionary against the Roman Empire. And, but I still thought that, you know, if it's up to the crowd, they're probably going to choose Jesus because they're so enthralled with him. And he's really done nothing wrong. I mean, Barabbas kills his enemies. Everyone knows he's an angry, violent man. Jesus says, love your enemies. I mean, he's never done anything to really hurt anyone. So I, I figured if we put these two up against each other, the crowd, by popular vote, would choose to release Jesus. So, that, so that's what I did. But that, 
was a tactical error on my part. Now, like I said, I think left to their own, they probably would have chosen Jesus. But the, the Jewish rulers were so upset and worked up to this point, no one could really oppose them. And they riled up the crowd. Um, I mean, they, they were continuing to hurl accusations at Jesus. I mean, no one really wanted to oppose the level of anger that they had at that moment. And they were talking about how Jesus is a blasphemer. And I think at that point, the, the talk about Jesus being a blasphemer against God began to sink in a little bit with the crowd. And so when I ask, who do you want me to release? The crowd said, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. And I ask, well, what about Jesus? He's done nothing wrong. Because, I mean, you have to bring a charge against someone if you're going to condemn him. But at that point, the crowd just worked up into a frenzy. And they just yelled, crucify him, crucify him. They just said over and over, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And I, I, I wanted to backpedal. I wanted to get Jesus off maybe with some lighter sentence or something, but I found out, you know, I can't. I backed into a corner. I mean, I, I wasn't going to let a riot start that day. But I also didn't want to accept responsibility for what was taking place because I wanted to free him. It's not my fault he was condemned. So I went over to a basin of water there. I washed my hands as a symbolic way of saying, this isn't my responsibility. And I told him, if you want him condemned, his blood will be on you, not on me. And many in the crowd said, we accept that. Let his blood be on us. And so Jesus went away to be condemned and be crucified a few hours later. Now, a lot of people look at me and the decisions I made that day and say I was weak. That gave in to the whims of the people rather than standing up for my convictions. But get this, I was not weak. I did what needed to be done that day. It was the Jewish leaders who were arrogant, who were violent, who, who were obsessed with getting rid of Jesus. They saw the opportunity and they seized it with all they had. The people who were gathered they were there, they were gullible. They were the weak ones. They were the ones who flip-flopped their view that day. I just did what had to be done to keep the peace of Jerusalem. And besides, I washed my hands of it that day. I didn't accept responsibility then, and I'm certainly not going to accept responsibility now. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered. Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, Let his blood be on us and on our children. So we see this account of, of Pontius Pilate and the whole trial and how Jesus was condemned. And I think there's a question that underlies all this. And it's the question of why did the Jewish leaders reject 
Jesus. Why were they so adamant to get rid of Jesus, to have nothing to do with him, to have him not just, not just beaten, not just in prison, but, but condemned to death? And this is a question I think that is very relevant to us today as well, because I think when we look around our culture, we find a lot of people who reject Jesus. Last week we talked about dismissing Jesus, people who just kind of shrug their shoulders, say whatever when they come face to face with him. But in rejecting Jesus, people look at him face to face, they hear his claims, and they make a conscious, active decision to say, no, I don't want that. So why do people reject Jesus? Why do people reject him then? Why do they still reject him now? And I want to look at three reasons why I believe the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus. And these three reasons illuminate a lot of reasons why people still reject him today. And the first reason is that because Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus claimed to be God, and this was something that the Jewish leaders in a very monotheistic environment where they believe there's one God, only one God, and that one God can never ever come to earth in the form of a human being, that, that boggled their minds. They rejected that idea. I mean, they couldn't stand for Jesus claiming to be God. Now, when you bring this topic up to people, sometimes they say, well, show me where in the Bible it, it says that Jesus is God. And that's a very good question. You should always ask, okay, where stands it written? Where is it in Scripture? Well, if you try to look for that phrase, I am God, on Jesus' lips, you won't find it in Scripture. Although you will find other parts of the New Testament where it does essentially say Jesus is God. But you won't find on Jesus' lips him saying, I am God, in that many words. But you will find many, many things that Jesus says, as well as other things he does, that make it very clear that Jesus believed himself to be more than an ordinary human being. That he actually did see himself to be God in the form of a human being. One of the places I see this, I mean, it's all over uh, the four Gospels, the four biographies of Jesus, but one place I see it is in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 33. I'll just pick up in this passage. I mean, he's been teaching for a while, so I'm picking up in the middle, but I think you'll get the drift of what's going on here. Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So you hear that in Jesus' listeners, as they hear the things that he is saying, they interpret that as Jesus claiming to be God. And they pick up stones to stone him, because in the Mosaic Law, back in the Old Testament, which was what the Jews followed, they believed that if someone commits blasphemy against God, which claimed to be God would be, you need to stone them to death. So, so that's what the Jewish people were trying to do. There are other instances of the exact same thing happening. Of Jesus saying something, they interpret that as a claim to deity. They try to stone him. And, and the reason they do is, he says, I and the Father are one. He's equating himself with the Heavenly Father, with God the Father. He's saying, you know, we're the same. Jewish leaders could not put up with that. One of the other things in here that's really interesting is Jesus says in verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. How can a human being, if they're a mere human being, ever say that? That I give them eternal life. You can't say that. 
We don't have the ability to give someone else eternal life and to allow them to, to overcome the grave. But that's what Jesus said. And you look at other statements that Jesus said throughout the Gospels, and there's no way that normal, healthy, mentally with it human being could say those things in complete truth. I mean, for instance, back in the fall, we did a series here called the I Am series, looking at these statements of Jesus that all began with the phrase, I am. And even the phrase, I am, that Jesus used in reference to himself is a claim to deity if you look back in the Old Testament. But you look at the statements that Jesus made, and they also, I mean, are statements that a normal human being could never make. For instance, John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never go thirsty. None of us can ever say that. We can encourage other people. We can serve other people. We can help other people. We can build other people up. But simply by having people come to us, we're never going to be able to fully satisfy every desire and need that they have in their lives. But Jesus claimed that he could do that. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, if Jesus isn't who he claims to be, that has to be the most, or one of the most arrogant statements that a human being has ever said. To say that I am the way to God. That come to me and I'll lead you to God. No, that's not right. Or think of John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is saying that he is the source of any sort of spiritual fruit that is born in someone's life. That's nonsense if Jesus is not God in the form of a human being. Now, I meet a lot of people who I talk with about, um, about God, about Jesus, about the Bible and stuff, and I find that many people like to say, well, Jesus is a great moral teacher. I really respect him. He's one of the best teachers who's ever lived on this earth. I find many, many people who say that. And I, I challenge them when they say that. I ask, how do, you count, how do you get that to jive with the claims that Jesus made about himself that point to him being God? Because Jesus cannot merely be a good human teacher if he says the things he says and they are not true. Even if they are true, he's more than just a human teacher. There's a diagram that I use a lot in a way, a logical thought process that is very helpful in talking with people about Jesus being God. And I want to encourage you, uh, write this down. Grab a sheet of paper. You can grab uh, your bulletin. There's an empty space in the back of uh, the insert in there. I want to encourage you to write this down. It's something that I find incredibly useful in helping point people to Jesus being God, but also useful for people who have their own questions or doubts. And this is just a logical process that if Jesus is God, which Scripture claims that he is, there are only two real options. That's true or false. He either is God or he isn't God. If he is God, that means that he is Lord and that there is a call to submit to him as such. But if he isn't God, then there are two more options. He either claimed to be God, he isn't God, and he knew that he isn't God, which that would make him to be a liar, or he claimed to be God, he wasn't God, but he was delusional, he was self-deceived, he, he didn't really know that he wasn't God, that makes him out to be a lunatic. I mean, he's not mentally with it. And these are the three logical options if Jesus really claimed to be God. Either he's Lord, or he's a liar, or a lunatic. And I think this is a very helpful process to walk people through to help them see you can't just say that Jesus was a good moral teacher. He's not just that. 
He's either insane, he's one of the world's biggest liars, or he is God. And that calls us to submit to him. But when we come back to the Jewish uh, people back then, they couldn't live with that claim that Jesus was God. So they rejected him. Another reason why the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus was because he didn't fit what they wanted. And we already heard Pastor David talking about Christmas gifts that we sometimes get, and we don't like those. It seems like, you know, every year I get something for Christmas, usually a piece of clothing of some sort, that I do end up returning. Because for some reason, it's not a good fit for me. It literally doesn't fit me, or it's not my style. I return it, and I basically reject it. Maybe get something else that, that I like a little bit better, that I want a little bit more. We all have that experience. But that's what the Jewish leaders did with Jesus. They looked at Jesus. They knew about all the prophecies about the Messiah all through the Old Testament. But they said, Jesus does not fit the model of the Messiah that we expect here. So they rejected him. Let me list out a few ways that Jesus didn't fit their expectations. One is that Jesus' kingdom was spiritual, not political. The Jewish people wanted a a political ruler to overthrow the Roman Empire. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of, of this world. Secondly, Jesus didn't keep their religious traditions. The Jewish leaders had built up all these traditions through the years of various beliefs and practices that they expected others to uphold. They were not strictly out of the Bible. They were just traditions that were built up. And Jesus didn't really care about upholding those non-biblical traditions. I mean, he allowed his disciples to eat without ceremonially washing their hands in the special way that the Jews wanted them to do. Jesus sometimes picked fights, it seemed, by healing people on the Sabbath. Jewish leaders said, no, you can't do that on the Sabbath. Jesus said, yes, I can. He wanted to make it very clear that a relationship with God is not based on following certain rules, but a relationship with God is based on God's grace and our faith. A third reason why Jesus didn't fit what they wanted is that he associated himself with, quote-unquote, the wrong people. There were certain people that Jews liked and certain others they didn't like. And Jesus associated himself all the time with sinners, the outcasts of the Jewish society, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, uh, with people who were sick, with leprosy or other diseases. Jesus loved hanging out with these type of people. Jewish leaders despised him for that. And finally, Jesus uh, was rejected because he was a threat to their authority. I mean, think about when he cleansed the temple. He, he drove out the money changers and, and the, the business people who were trying to sell things in the temple that should not be sold in the temple. That was undermining the authority of the Jewish leaders who allowed that type of thing. There are other times when the Jewish leaders would bring a hard question to Jesus trying to trap him, and he would uh, turn the tables on them and ask them a question in return that would humiliate them and embarrass them and drive them away just feeling bad and upset and angry. They couldn't stand Jesus. He undermined their authority. And I think about people today. There are many people today who don't really want Jesus as Savior. He's not what they want. But I think it's important that we recognize that that what's important is not just what we want here, but it's what we need. We need a Savior. We have a sin problem. And God has offered us a way out through Jesus as our Savior. That's our need Even if we don't want it, even if we don't want to submit to Jesus, we still have that need of some way to deal with that sin, and Jesus is the God-ordained way. Now, a third reason why I think the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus and why people still do today is because Jesus calls for life change. He calls for life change. He calls people to take up their cross and to follow him. 
I think of the time in John chapter 8 when the Jewish leaders pulled this, this woman who supposedly was caught into adultery into the temple courts when Jesus was teaching. And they said, Jesus, what should we do with her? We caught her in adultery. Mosaic law says that we should stone her to death. What do you say that we should do? And Jesus was well known for grace and forgiveness. And so the Jewish leaders were trying to trap him once again. But Jesus again turned the tables on them. Jesus said, if any of you is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And one by one, those Jewish leaders left. Till it was only Jesus and this woman standing there. And Jesus said, where are your accusers? No one is left here with us. They didn't condemn you, neither do I. And Jesus didn't end there though. He said, go and leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. So there's grace and forgiveness, but there is also the call to change. And that's a call that, that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And it's a, it's a call that I think turned the Jewish leaders off to Jesus, and it still turns people off today many times. But at the end of the day, back to the trial with Pontius Pilate, Jesus was sent away to be crucified. The cross, in, from one perspective, represents the ultimate form of rejection. He was rejected by his own people and crucified. But from a different perspective, the cross represents the ultimate form of acceptance for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us so that we could be forgiven of our sins. God could have rejected us because of our sins, but he chose not to. I think of Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, who said, We are more wicked than we ever dared believe but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. We are incredibly sinful people, but we also are incredibly loved by Christ. Now think back to how Jesus was certainly on a mission that he knew he was going to die. I mean, he said the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. He told his disciples many times, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed there. He knew that he was going to be killed, but he knew that that's what it took in order to pay the penalty we deserve for our sins. I think of Isaiah chapter 53, prophecy many hundreds of years before the time of Christ. Isaiah was pointing ahead to Jesus and said, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. This is why we praise God through Jesus, because Jesus came while we were sinners and died to pay the penalty we deserve. The first Sunday of each month here at Freedom's Church, we gather for communion, the Lord's Supper, as a way to remind ourselves in a tangible manner of Christ's love for us. We have bread, which represents the broken body of Christ on our behalf. We have a cup, which represents the shed blood of Christ on our behalf. And in a few moments, the servers are going to pass out the bread and then the cup. Like I said, it's a tangible way to remember Christ's great love for us. And Christ instituted uh, this practice at the Last Supper the night before he was crucified. When you receive the elements, we encourage you to hold on to them until everyone's been served and all lead us in partaking together. Um, you don't have to be a member or a regular attender of Freedoms to join with us, but if you are a person who's placed your faith in Christ for forgiveness of sins, then you are welcome to join with us. We will now have the prayer for the bread.
Please bow your heads. Thank you, Father, for sending us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true bread of life. Lord, the life you give is conveyed by your word and made effectual by the Spirit. It is written that whoever comes to you will never go hungry, and whoever believes in you will never go thirsty. You give us everything we need. Lord, we know you desire a loving and obedient heart. As we take this bread, may we yield ourselves to you. We thank you for the riches of your grace. We thank you that we have been adopted into your family and are accepted by you. Lord, remove every, ex- every obstruction that hinders our communion with you. Amen.